Well, uh, thanks for coming. Uh, it's always our uh, delight and joy and privilege to be able to worship together. Uh, if you're new or if you're in town from uh, just being a guest um, from somewhere else, I want to especially uh, say thanks for coming. I'm glad that you could be with us here today. Uh, we're um, walking through a, a series in the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the poetic books of the Old Testament, and we've been led on this journey through life, uh, life lessons, life 101, life uh, teachings from an inspired teacher who has examined and experimented and experienced so many things in life and has written down his conclusions for us uh, to understand what is the meaning and the purpose and the essence of the nature of life. And one of the things that we've seen thus far early on is that life is a vapor. Um, It's a mist. It's ephemeral. It's short-lived. It's uh, not... Uh, there can be a, such a sense of unsubstantialness, if that's uh, a, a word, uh, to life. And so as he's trying to find what is on earth is the meaning of life, he's, he's journeying to different places and, and pleasures and work and wisdom and all of these things, and he's found all of these things to be completely bankrupt as he talks about life under the sun. And so we're going to continue uh, by looking at another thing that he uh, is going to teach us in, about the nature of life. It's going to come from Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Uh, but this past week, I was at a uh, presbytery meeting. Pastor Goose and I went to our presbytery meeting, and um, during the sermon that was preached, the pastor was talking about, uh, he, was, he was citing an interview that was conducted with a, uh, Dr. Livingston uh, up in Washington, D.C. on a radio station a couple years back. And uh, Dr. Livingston was a sociologist, psychologist, counselor, and um, the question was, what are, the, what are the, the things about life? What is it that every person needs in order to be happy in life? And he cited three things. One of the things he said was to have meaningful work. The second thing he said was to have uh, hope for the future. And then the third thing, and he said the most important thing is that we have meaningful relationships with each other. Uh, another uh, book that I was reading this week cited another study, uh, a, an academic journal called the Journal of, uh, the journal of Happiness, uh, something like that. Uh, It's a journal that that studies everything about happiness, and all these studies were done, and they were trying to narrow down what is it that separates the truly happy people from the less happy people? What is the one thing in life, the one characteristic trait of life that separates the happy ones from the not-so-happy ones? And it had nothing to do with job, had nothing to do with how much money you made, had nothing to do with your social status. It had everything to do with the nature and the quality of your relationships interpersonally with other people. These studies and and study and study and study after them and before them are saying the exact same thing, that everyone knows that the most important quality in having a happy life is having deep, abiding, meaningful, life-giving, life-exchanging relationships with other people. And that's what the teacher is going to teach us today. If that's true, then why is it that so few of us really experience these things? And so Ecclesiastes chapter 4, we're going to read starting in verse 7 through the end of the chapter, verse 16. We're going to see what the teacher tells us as he observed life about the nature of relationships under the sun. Verse 7, this is God's word. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling? Yes, why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. 
the cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to take warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. This is God's word. As we look into this passage, we're going to just highlight three things about the nature of uh, relationships as it comes to us from the teacher. The first thing that we're going to see is sacrificing relationships for anything will make us miserable, okay? Sacrificing relationships for anything, whatever that thing might be, will make us miserable. Here's what, here's what happens when we sacrifice relationships on a purely emotional and, and, and phys- uh, physiological, physical level. Do you know that if you, uh, if you don't have relationships with people, right, deep, soul-touching, life-giving relationships, then the chances are, in, are, are just exponentially higher that you will suffer from uh, low self-esteem, sexual addiction, Right, that you'll suffer from uh, eating disorders, have depression and anxiety. If you don't have life-giving relationships, then the chances of you having, uh, suffering these kinds of things exponentially increases. If you don't have life-giving relationships with other people, then from anywhere from two to five times, you're more likely, two to five times more likely to die of any cause across the board, a whole bunch of different ways of dying. If you don't have relationships with people, you are anywhere from two to five times more likely, studies have shown, for you to die. And here's a, here's a kicker. People who don't have relationships with people, with others, but are extremely healthy and eat extremely well, have a, still have a lot lower chance of living a long life than those who have poor health habits, yet are in deeply connected relationships with other people. In other words, here's what, here's what, here's what these studies are saying. It is far better for you to be an overeating at a Chinese buffet kind of person, lazy boy, sit on your couch, watch DVDs and movies all the time, chain smoker, yet with a few really good friends, you're going to live a lot longer, they say, than people who eat at sweet tomatoes every day and work out six times a week but have no relationships with other people. If you sacrifice relationships for anything, your life is going to be miserable. That's not only the testimony of Scripture, but that's a testimony of life. That if we sacrifice relationships for anything, our lives are going to be miserable. So, how are our lives, and how is the quality of your life? How's the quality of your relationships? There's a direct correlation between the two. This is what he observed in verse 7. I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. Why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Verse 8 says there's a man all alone, and it's not talking about the fact that he didn't have a wife or he didn't have kids. It's saying in any, he had none of these relationships. He was completely alone, completely isolated. None of these things. And he's working and working and working. For him, it was sacrificing relationships for the sake of work, of achievement, of riches, whatever it might be that he's that's driving him into the ground to work. And he's working and working and working. And he realizes that at the end of all this, he's like, you know what? Why am I doing this? 
This is, it is worse in chapter two where the guy is working and working and working and then he has to hand his stuff over at the end of his life to a fool who doesn't know what he's doing with his money. He's saying, I'm working and working and working and I've got all this stuff left over, but I've got nobody to give it to. Like, What's the point of all this? He said, I'm working, and, but there's no end to his work. He's working and he's never satisfied with all of these things that he's got. And he looks around and there's nobody around him. He says, why? This is miserable. A meaningless, uh, this is mi- meaningless, a miserable Business is what he says. And he's, he's gotten all of these things that the world might want financially and, and, and job-wise and, and work-wise, but he's got no relationships with people. And he's saying life is completely miserable. This is, uh, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a Gleek, but Olivia is. And this past week, uh, it, it, I, I caught a, a glimpse of the show. A lady named Sue Sylvester, apparently she's a cheerleading coach, right? And she's just uh, mean as a as a snake. And so she's uh, sitting in, in her office one day and she's talking with uh, Will Schuster. Olivia told me that was his name. Good looking guy. He's like the Glee Club coach. And so they're talking, right? Having this conversation. And she's like, all these years I've been slaving away doing all. And what do I have to show for this? What do I have to show for coaching cheerleading? And Will says to her, says, you've got five consecutive championships. And she says, yeah, and I'm all alone. I'm all alone five consecutive championships of cheerleading. And she's giving herself to all these things, and yet she's all alone. She's like, what do I have to show for it? These trophies mean nothing to me. And she has this moment that could potentially change her life if she would heed the voice in her heart. She says, what am I doing all this for? What's the point of all this? This is what the man here says. He finally comes to this realization. Why am I doing all these things? He's been working and working with his, with his, his nose to the grind, and he's been working all of these things. And finally, he says, what's, what's the point of all this? And for Sue, that's what she, what's the point of all this? If I've got nobody around me, if I'm all alone. And maybe for some of us, right, today we come to that realization also. I've been doing all of these things. I've been working so hard at school but I've forgotten all of my relationships with people that used to matter to me. Here I am trying to get the best grade and get in the best college. I realize that my relationships have gone to kaput. There's nothing to show for them. I used to be so close with him or with her. And now we look back and, and I look back at regret over my last two years that I haven't given anything to my people, to my friends. And now as I finish up this year of school or as I graduate college or as I move on, I, I have nothing to show for these relationships except on Facebook, they say, it's been a long time. I wish things were the way they used to be. Maybe for some of us, as we're, as we're, we're, we're feeling the weight of this, this is what the writer, the teacher of Ecclesiastes is, is trying to get us to feel. Trying to get us to feel the full weight of these things because unless we lose hope in what does not satisfy, we'll never be able to put hope in that which does. And so he's trying to get us to see, which is see the futility of all of these things and come to your senses. And so how are the nature, the quality of your relationships with people that matter the most to you? If someone to ask you who are the most important people in your life and you're to name these people, how are those relationships? Is there life giving in those relationships? Uh, when I was in college, it was the first time I heard this song. Uh, it was a very catchy it was a very catchy chorus, and so um, I always remember the chorus, and then I, I just recently came upon it again. It's called Cats in the Cradle. It's very interesting. Written by this guy, this man, and uh, four verses to In the first verse, he's talking about how his son was born. He was so happy. He looked at his son. He had bills to pay, and so he kept on working, and before he knew it, 
Uh, the kid started growing. He started walking while he was away on a business trip or something like that. And he started talking. Once he started talking, he said, Daddy, one day I'm going to be just like you. I'm going to be just like you, Dad. And the chorus goes, cats in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man in the moon. And the kid is asking, when are you coming home, Dad? When are you coming home? He says, I don't know when, but when we do, we'll have a good time then. We'll have a good time then. The second verse, the boy turns 10 and dad gives him a ball for his birthday. And the kid is so excited. He's like, dad, can you come teach me how to throw? Teach me how to throw. And the dad says, not right now. I'm a little bit busy. And the dad's seeing his son. He says, I couldn't play with him then, but the smile on his face didn't go away as he walked away. And he said, I'm going to be just like you, dad. Be just like you. Third verse, the boy graduates from college and the dad is proud of him. He says, what a fine young man he's been. And as he comes home, he's like, you know, I'm proud of you, son. Sit down, let's talk. And son says, you know, that, I'll do that, dad. But, but what I really wanted was I want to borrow the car keys. I want to take the car out for a spin. He goes out. And then the last verse, dad is old. He's retired now. Son's moved away, had a fa- has a family of his own. The dad calls him up and he says, it's been a long time. Love to get together. Love to get together. Can you come on home? And the son says, you know what? Uh, things are real busy at work, boy's sick with the flu. I can't, I really want to. It's been good talking to you, dad, but, but I, I, I just don't have the time right now. As, it, as he hangs up, the dad realizes that, yeah, my son has grown up to be just like me. Sacrificing relationships on the altar of anything is gonna make us miserable. Whether it be work, whether it be your success, whether it be school, your hopes, your dreams, say, you know what, I, I'll, I'll, I'll get to that call later. I'll call him back later. And I, 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 I was really convicted by this message too, myself. I'm not, I'm not speaking as if I'm on top of Mount Sinai, like, you know, like I know everything and I've got this all figured out. This is like, this is, this is me. I'm realizing I, I've got some relational business I need to, to take care of. We sacrifice relationships on the altar of anything. Life becomes miserable. The second thing that we see, though, second thing that teacher is going to show us is surrounding ourselves with people won't cure our loneliness. And we've all experienced that, haven't we? It, uh, this is the last picture, verse 13. He gets two pictures sandwiched in between that is the meat of the benefit of life-giving relationships. But the last picture we see is of another guy. It says, better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to take warning. Then there's poor but wise youth. It's better than a king who no longer takes warning from people. Basically, he's isolating himself from others. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. So this youth has risen to kingship, to be the successor of this wise and stubborn and isolated king. Verse 15, I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. So this youth has risen up to the kingship, and everyone is following him. He's got this throng of people all around him as the king. Verse 16, there was no end to all the people who were before him. But those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And, you know, he had all of these people around him. All these people were praising him. They were applauding him. But what we realize is that success and fame and popularity is no insulation for isolation. In fact, the more people we have around us, oftentimes the lonelier we can be. You can have a thousand Facebook friends and a thousand phone, cell phone contacts and still go home lonely each night. Because being surrounded by people doesn't cure our loneliness. 
We could have 15 people, 10 people in our cell church and have such a great time and yet still go home at night feeling like, you know what, I still feel so lonely. Being surrounded by people doesn't cure our loneliness. In fact, the screaming, that the screaming chatter of these superficial relationships can only make that loneliness even greater. Because we realize we've got so many people, and yet the nature of these relationships are so shallow and so superficial that it only drives a wedge between all these people and us because we feel more and more isolated because we realize how far from what we really long for these relationships are giving to us. We realize the, the, the severe dearth of all of these things, of these kinds of relationships and the, and the intimacy that they may be seemingly promised but never really give to us. Now, uh, I was thinking of an illustration for this, and so uh, our beloved pastor, Goose, who is uh, very in touch with youth culture, said, there's a, um, there's a, there's a song by Britney Spears that, that kind of talks about this, and then he started singing it and dancing to it, and um, so I, uh, I, he didn't know the name of the song, though, so I, uh, there's one person that we turn to in, in, in Harvest when we have a need for uh, Britney Spears information, so there's a fellow named Eric Lyons, so I texted him said, Eric, is there a song that Britney Spears sings that talks about her being lonely? And he immediately texted back. And he said, yeah, the song is called Lucky. It's on Oops, I Did It Again, her second album. And it's track number seven. <laughs> Very good. So I uh, obviously did it. I didn't download this song, but I went on YouTube because I heard the music video was really good. And so I watched this music video, and it's about this girl named Lucky. It's interesting, though. This is just kind of a side note on on the Oops, I Did It Again album, it's track number seven, the lucky number. And on the Greatest Hits compilation, it's, it's track number 13, unlucky. Very interesting. So this girl named Lucky, video begins, she's on top of the world. Right? There's this uh, billboard. I think the billboard says top of the world, maybe. Eric can correct me if I'm wrong later. But she's sitting on top of She's a Hollywood it girl. Everyone is like praising her, and she's like all that. She's got this beautiful smile, and she's like walking around, and she's like, there's this girl named Lucky. It's the story of a girl named Lucky. And Lucky's going around, and she's living the Hollywood life, and she's walking the red carpet, wins an Oscar Academy Award. Academy Award for Best Oscar goes to Lucky, and she wins it, and she's like so happy and smiling. And, and yet, through every clip of this video, you look at her eyes, and there's a sense of just a deep loneliness and emptiness in her heart, in her eyes. You can, you can, and that, that's kind of the, the way they're trying to portray this. She's walking on this red car, and everyone is clapping for her, and everyone is just smiling. She goes in the limousine. She's finally all alone, and she takes off this fake smile, and there's this misery. There's this look of just, if everyone says I'm so lucky, but why do I feel like this? I cry, cry, crying in my lonely heart. If everyone says she's got everything that she wants, then why is it that I cry these tears or shed these tears at night? And the video ends with her, uh, makeup running as she's sitting alone on her bed, wondering why she's so lonely. You know, maybe, maybe that's some of us here. Everyone says I'm lucky. What's us? I'm so lucky. Got a great boyfriend. Got a great wife. Got a great job. I'm at a great college. I'm on the honor roll. I'm student body this and that. I'm on the varsity this and that team. Everyone says I'm so lucky, but why do I feel so alone at night when I go home? Why is it that I cry myself to sleep? Why is it that no one understands this, this aching emptiness within my heart? 
Why is it that everyone says, I wish I could be like you? But if they only knew what goes on behind these hazel eyes, if only they knew what took place in my heart when I went to bed at night, if only they knew. See, popularity, this is something that so many people chase. And yet we see how fleeting it is that he had it for a moment, and yet those who came after him were not pleased with him. You ask Millie Vanilli, Vanilla Ice, right? uh, Tiffany. <laughs> That's kind of back when, when we were uh, youth, teenagers. And ask all these people, Mini-Me, right? He was so cool in Austin Powers. Right now he's doing these like C-list help. I'm a celebrity survivor, whatever it is. And he's getting picked on. Everyone's making fun of him. This popularity and, and all these things are so fleeting. People who praise you one moment are making fun of you the next. They're not pleased with you after a while. That's what happened with, with Joseph, isn't it? Joseph in the Bible. We, we studied his life a few months back, and he rose to prominence, and yet Exodus begins by saying, there rose a people, a generation, who did not even know who Joseph was. He could be surrounded by, by people and still be so lonely. That's what happened with Jesus, too. The crowds that praised him and said, hail him, were the same ones who later would say crucify him just in a span of five days. At these things that we clamor for and, and want all these people, if I could just be surrounded by people, I could have the praise of people, this fame and popularity and the crowds and the throngs are all fleeting because we begin to realize very quickly that being surrounded by people won't cure our loneliness. The last thing that the teacher tells us, so starting in verse 9 is this, is that Care for loneliness comes not because of the quantity of our relationships, but by the quality. Care for loneliness, caring loneliness comes based on the quality, not the quantity of our relationships. Verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. Cord of three strands is not quickly broken. He presents an alternative view of life that places relationships at the very core and the very essence of it and says, this here is how we ought to live if we want to have a life full of meaning and full of purpose and full of connection and vitality, saying this is what could be your life. If you were to not sacrifice relationships on the altar of whatever it is, if you were to not think that being merely surrounded by people was going to give you a sense of uh, cure for your loneliness. It says, this is what life could look like. It says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. Whereas one person slaving away says, what's the point of all this? There's nothing to show for it. It says, when two people work together, you work together, you share the work, but you also share the wealth. The outcome of a life together with other people is infinitely greater. It's exponentially greater. They have a good return for their work. Saying two people are better than one because it's not just one plus one equals two. It's one plus one equals something far greater, three or four or five, because there is a greater return. The sum is infinitely greater than its parts, not only when you're together, but the life-giving nature of these relationships is such that even when you're apart, because of the fact that you've got these relationships, you are far greater than when you, than, you're far greater than if you were simply alone. 
That when I get together because of this friendship that I have, because of this vital, intimate connection that I've got with my friend, with my cell church member, because of this relationship that I've got, I am a far greater person. That I'm better because of that person. Do you have relationships like that where you feel like because of that person, I'm a better person? And because of me as a friend to them, they are infinitely greater than they could have been apart from me saying two are better than one because there's a good return for their work. And he says, if one falls down, another friend can help him up. In those days in the ancient East, they had you know, dark roads and times where people would fall into ditches and they would fall into holes. He's saying, if you fall into a hole that was maybe a trap for animals and you fall into that place, you can't get up. But if you've got another person traveling with you, they can help you up. Do you have someone in your life when you fall down that you could call in the middle of the night or you could call at any time? You know what? I'm just in a funk right now. I don't know what's happened to me. I'm just living in this sense of everything in my life feels dark. Everything in my life feels hopeless. I need someone to help me. Do you have a person like that in your life who will be there for you like that? If not, what have you sacrificed relationships for? Do you have somebody like that in your life? And he goes on and says, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. This is uh, the, 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 the band... I was going to say a great band, but it's not really great because I don't know any of their songs. band called Three Dog Night. They got their title from uh, seeing the uh, aborigine in Australia. They would get together, and in cold nights, they would dig a hole in the desert, and they would bring in a dingo. A dingo is kind of like a wild dog that's uh, native to Aus- uh, Australia. And they'd bring a dog into that hole, and they would keep warm at night. They didn't have sleeping bags in those days. Uh, well, maybe, I guess they don't have it in the... Uh, Australian outback, but they'd bring uh, a dingo dog into the hole. And when it got colder, they'd bring two dogs. When it got really cold, they'd call it a three-dog night. They'd bring three dogs in there to keep themselves warm. Back in the times when the teacher is writing, that's how it was also. They didn't have uh, sleeping bags to warm themselves. They didn't have down blankets or electric blankets like we have in in Asian cultures. They just had each other. If you're all alone, how are you going to keep warm? And where do you go when the world seems like a cold and cruel place? Do you have somebody who will be warmth for you, for your soul? Who will be there and encourage you and help you and strengthen you? And he says, the one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. Like in the parable of the Good Samaritan, on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, windy road, there are bandits hiding out. It's kind of like when we go to Ecuador, we were warned that when we are close to the Colombian border where there's lots of trees and overhang, uh, windy roads, oftentimes that's where the Colombian guerrillas would, would hang out and hide out. And they said, you got to be careful. You don't want to slow down on those roads. They might jump out and kidnap you. That's the way it was in the time that Jesus was telling this story. It's the way it was in the time that the teacher is writing also. Uh, one person could easily be overpowered, but two people could defend themselves. They could fight off the enemies. You have someone like that. And then he says here, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. The whole point of these things is not only talking about the life-giving power and the soul-touching, soul-touching power of, of relationships with people, but the interesting thing is he just says you need one or two people. That's all you need. It's not talking about quantity. It's talking about quality. And when he talks about a cord of three strands, it's not quickly broken. He's saying how intimately interwoven these three strands are, and that kind of thing can't be quickly broken. Jesus would later say the same thing. He said, where only two or three gather in my name, I'm there with them. That's the church. 
And when two or three people gather, the life-giving spirit of the living God flows and, and produces union and life-giving power in those relationships when we put Christ at the center. He's not just saying get two or three people who like to see Taylor Lautner at the movie theater. He's not just saying get two or three people who like to play basketball or go bowling. He's not just two or three people who like to talk about you know, what last week's episode of American Idol is like. He's saying two or three people who are intimately woven together in a vital, life-giving, spirit-filled, spirit-led relationship with one another. Think that kind of relationship is going to give power to your life. Do we have people like that in our lives? If something good were to happen in your life, you just pick up the phone and say, hey, you know what? I just wanted to let you know I, I got a promotion at work. I wanted to let you know that my mom got out of the hospital. Do you have people like that that you can celebrate with? Or if... If all the stuff of life hits the fan, do you have somebody that you could talk to and just bleed all over and then not get weirded out? Do you have somebody that you can trust with your life and say, hey, you know what? I'm just really wrestling with this issue here. I just just want you to pray for me. I just want you to be there and to listen to me. Do you have someone like that in your life? Do you have somebody there who knows and you can can entrust that they know everything about you and they're not going to go and Tell their spouse or their cell church, hey, pray for this guy, pray for this girl, pray for my friend. You have somebody like that that you can entrust yourself to. Saying that's how important this stuff is. That's how important it is. The the, the reality is that we can go even at, at church and be surrounded by people who we think I should be close with and yet still go home Sunday as you're driving home and saying, I didn't connect with anybody. And that's a tragedy. This past two weeks, I've heard, three weeks, I've heard a couple stories of people who were uh, talking about just how they felt that way at big church, but then when they went into cell church, they found something so much deeper, and they found a new love for church. They found a new hope and a new encouragement that it could be something so much more. And that's what, that's what we do. That's what Cell Church is about. It's not about just getting together and watching basketball games or getting together and eating ice cream together. It's about bearing our soul and connecting and thinking about what was it that the church in the New Testament was like? What was it that, that gave them that sense of power and connection that made all these people outside the church want to stream in and knock down their doors and say, I want to be a part of this. What was it? And there's something more there. There's something deeper than just a breakfast club or a dinner club or a meeting of folks who just want to shoot the breeze and, and get superficial and that's it. Right? There's something deeper there. It's so important that you know, even before sin even entered the world, God said it's not good for y'all to be alone. It's not good for you to be alone. Not y'all. It's not good for you, Adam, to be alone. How much more when sin entered the world and anxiety and stress and job pressures, and marital difficulties, and relational issues, and backstabbing, and depression, and all of these things enter the picture. How much more do we need people? How much more is it not good for us to be alone? That's how important it is. That's how important it is. It's this important that this guy said, you know what, it's miserable, life is miserable if I don't have these kinds of relationships. It's this important that God would send his son Jesus into the world. And he would experience the man who should have known nothing but intimacy with all of 
he's the one who, who at the very, he should have known nothing but intimacy with the Father and with people whom he loved, but he willingly submitted himself. God involved with a small group of 12 people whom he loved and gave himself everything to. And yet they isolated him. They left him all alone. And then on the cross, Jesus drank the cup of misery so that we could drink in the cup of meaning. He drank the cup of misery, becoming isolated and alone and abandoned so that we could know what it is to have intimate relationships with him and with one another as a result. Saying it's that important, it's that important, it's that important that I would give my life that you'd be reconciled to God, your father, and then you'd be reconciled one to another. Saying that's what I gave my life for. Not that you could, I didn't die so that you could live a meaningless, isolated life. Look, if you want to go fast, you go at it alone. But if you want to go far, then you got to do it with people. That's why he came. That's why he died. That's why he rose again. To live in fulfillment of John 10, 10. I I came so that you could have life and have it in abundance. And it starts with him and it flows outward there. Let's pray together. Let's uh, take a moment to reflect on his word. Where is it that we have... Where is it that we've gone astray? Whereas once we were pursuing relationships and intimacy with other people, and now we've settled for the superficial, now we've settled for a smile and a handshake, and that's it. What have we sacrificed relationships for? God is saying, would you come back and know that I've given relationships to you as a gift that you might live? It's this important that it's one be in the greatest commandment in all of life to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And that comes from first being loved and loving God with everything within. Let's take a moment as we reflect to surrender to God any idols, any other things that we've sacrificed relationships for. Let's say, God, forgive me. And then let's begin to pray for our relationships. Who are the relationships in your life that you value, that you have let go on the back burner for the sake of other things? Let's begin to pray for those people, for those relationships, and say, God, help me to come back to vital union with these people, whether it be your Sunday school class, your cell church, your spouse, your friends. Let's take a moment to come to the Lord and say, God, I need your help so that I wouldn't just sing, I wouldn't just hear, I wouldn't just receive, but I would live and do and change as a result of this teaching. So let's come before the Lord and let's ask the Lord God that he would help us to change for his beautiful namesake. Let's come to him in prayer. to the Lord's table this afternoon. Let's pray to the Lord that we would examine our hearts, really examine our hearts. And and as we replay the gospel in our hearts, the work of Christ for us, his being betrayed, him drinking the cup of misery and isolation so that we would drink in the cup of blessing and joy and life. We reflect on this. Let's reflect on any ways, as 1 Corinthians 11 says, any ways that we have 
lived in a manner unworthy of the gospel. Let's reflect on that and, and just repent and confess to the Lord any relational sins that we've committed, any sins of the flesh, any sins in terms of our attitudes, our thoughts, our words, our motives, our actions, things we've done, places we've gone, sins we've committed. Let's uh, ask the Lord that he would, again, cleanse our conscience by reminding us of the shed blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Let's take a moment as we continue to respond and prepare. Let's take a minute to pray and prepare our hearts to come to the table. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the teaching of scripture that reminds us and that challenges us and pushes us beyond our comforts, that shakes us out of well-worn paths of life and grooves that we have become comfortable with. Fathers, many of us have become comfortable just living life and seeing people as interruptions to life. Where, God, you would see them, not as interruptions, but you would see them as essential. The essence of life is people. We pray that you would change our mindset and shape our hearts so that we would begin to open our hearts and connect with one another. That you would help us to find one or two or three or four good, solid friends and relationships with whom we can go the distance with. We pray that you would help us to start by going deep with you is diving off the deep end of that pool into intimacy with you and from that place being able to give freely from what we've received from you to others. We thank you. We love you because you've loved us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name.